This is Sheila Hollinghead in search of a quiet and peaceful life. Today we're going to be talking about That Heat of Strength by C.S. Lewis. The title of this book comes from a poem by Sir David Lindsay about the Tower of Babel. From the poem in the Bible, we discover that the hideous strength is twofold. First is mankind's independence that they thought the tower would give them. We read in Genesis 11:4, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. The implication is that they could reach heaven by their own power. The hideous strength is the belief that by mankind's progress, the world and our lives will become better, that we can reach heaven. Lewis saw the handwriting on the wall, and he challenges that assumption. While it is a worthy goal to better the world, it is not achieved by our own intelligence and strength. Often what we believe will lead to utopia, instead brings hell on earth are scratching and clawing to climb to reach the epitome of happiness often results in destruction of ourselves and others, and that becomes clear in that hideous dream. But that is not all. The next part of Genesis 11:4 states, And let us make us a name. The second meaning of that hideous dream is our wish for success, for our own works to be valued more highly than God's or at least more highly than our fellow man's. This then becomes the theme of the book, the duality and our hunger for independence and our thirst for success. This includes our wish to be independent of our family, our belief that we can create good without seeking God, our desire to compromise values, and our willingness to become part of the quote, inner circle, unquote, to achieve pain. These beliefs dangle before us as shining and as tempting as the fruit from the tree in the garden. And are they not one and the same? Have we not learned that when we clutch them in our grasp, that they destroy us? Not only destroy us, but destroy those around us. Our landscape is littered with broken families, broken lives, even a broken society that has resulted in heartache for millions. This is what Lewis fleshes out in that hideous strength, one part of a larger trilogy. He foreshadows in the first two books what culminates in this one. To fully understand this last book, we must understand the purposes of the first two. The first book, Out of the Silent Planet, deals with the masculine. The second book, Paralandra, deals with the feminine. A quote from Paralandra indicates the direction Lewis is taking us. The two creatures were sexless, but he of Malacandra was masculine, not male. She of Paralandra was feminine, not female. Malacandra seemed to him to have the look of one standing armed at the ramparts of his own remote archaic world in ceaseless vigilance. His eyes were ever roaming the earthward horizon whence this danger came long ago. A sailor's look, Ransom once said to me, you know, eyes that are impregnated with distance. But the eyes of Paralandra opened as it were inward, as if they were the 
curtain gateway to a world of waves and murmurings and wondering airs of light that rocked in winds and splashed on mossy stones and descended as the dew arose sunward in the thin spun delicacy of mist. On Mars the very forests are stone, in Venus the land swim. For now he thought of them no more as Malacandra and Paralandra. He called them by their Tellurian names. With deep wonder he thought to himself, My eyes have seen Mars and Venus. I have seen Ares and Aphrodite. Malacandra and Paralandra exist in a world that knows no sin, and they embody the perfect masculine and the perfect feminine. Earth, of course, is fallen and leaves us with the imperfect male and the imperfect female. In that hideous strength, Lewis explores how Earth can regain paradise that still exists on Venus in Paralandra. The story of this redemption, the return to paradise, is told through the two main characters, Jane and Mark Studdock. Jane embodies the independence of spirit, part of that hideous strength seen in the makers of the Tower of Babel. She does not wish to obey any man, and certainly not God. She wants to prove she has no need for anyone, and initially even spurns her gift of prophecy. Mark, on the other hand, longs for success and power, the other part of the hideous strength. He desires to make a name for himself. He needs no craves the approval of others. He engages in the unethical, the immoral, and the unlawful within the organization of NICE to achieve a name for himself. His willingness to build his tower at all costs leads him to abandon his wife, even when she needs him. Both become part of groups. Both meet the heads of their groups. Let's contrast the characteristics of these heads. Let's begin with the literal head of NICE. This head demands, compels, commands, devours flesh and blood through tubes that feed it, elicits fear, brings terror. It empties Mark and leaves him sorrowing. Let's contrast this with the head at the house of St. Anne's. That is, the director, Mr. Fisher King, and note that Jesus is evoked by the name, are ransom, again, a call to Jesus. This head receives, leads, listens, feeds on bread and wine, and feeds it to others, elicits fear, brings comfort, fills Jane with joy. Their meetings with the respective leaders begins Mark and Jane's journeys to a realization of their mistakes. It sets them on the way. Both must undergo a death to self. Jane dies to her desire for independence. Mark dies to his need for success. This need to be part of the quote, inner circle, unquote, at all costs. Jane's journey is strengthened and enhanced by a growing awareness of beauty. This begins with a simple charm of a hat continues with her growing consciousness of the beauty and the garden at St. Anne's, a garden she compares to the Garden of Eden. Then her admiration of Camilla's Deniston's elegance and ends with an appreciation for her own beauty. 
the ability to create beauty and in doing so to point us to greater beauty is a characteristic of the feminine. And note that a feminine trait can reside in both biological males and females. Men are capable of creating beauty also. Mark's journey, in contrast, involves his growing awareness of the ugliness around him, from Barry Hardcastle to, this, to the dismembered head, to the lack of morals and structure at NICE. He longs for goodness, the goodness of normal, and that leads him back to family and home. When our eyes are open to the beauty of our beloved, they open wider to drink in more beauty and eventually the ultimate beauty. Jane is driven by appreciation of beauty, marked by a revulsion of ugliness. In so doing, they learn that something greater lies above them. Something greater surrounds them. And to that greatness, the sublime that Lewis outlines in The Abolition of Man, both Mark and Jane have to submit. In submission, both experience greater beauty and greater joy. Husband, Lewis shows us, must submit to God. They must refuse to find or seek happiness in their own success or fame. The submission is manifested in their willing sacrifice to home and family. The sacrifice involves the nourishing and cherishing of their wives, even at the expense of worldly success. We read in Ephesians 5, 25-29, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but it sh that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it, even as the Lord, the church. The key words here in Ephesians are his own flesh. A husband and wife are to unite to form one being, a new organism, as Lewis also tells us in one of his most popular books, The Four Loves. This new being walks so closely together, so much in lockstep, that where one begins and the other ends cannot be distinguished. This new entity, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, has a great purpose, to be fruitful and multiply. This fruitfulness does not necessarily mean the bearing of children, although it may, may very well mean that. Instead, it means that the two walk as one in order to help the growth of this new being. The nourishing and feeding of this new one results in something greater than, than either person and this new entity could have accomplished alone. In this union, fruit is born to feed others. Lewis shows us this in the childless couple, the Dimbles. Our success is not only in the biological children we might produce, but more so in the joy, love, salvation, and peace we bring to the world. The point Lewis makes is that both must become obedient to God to achieve fruit, and part of that fruit is joy. The book seems to end on a strange note. Mark is lured into the bedchamber, not by his wife, but by what appears to be a goddess. 
This goddess, I believe, represents the pure feminine. The quote from the book is, the face was enigmatic, ruthless, he thought, inhumanly beautiful. It was opening the door for him. He did not dare to disobey. Surely, he thought, I must have died. And yes, he has died. The part of him that wanted success at all costs, even to the neglect of his wife, has died. And what awaits this death? A new life, a resurrected life. And he went in, found himself in some place of sweet smells and bright fires with food and wine and a rich bed. He found himself in the bridal chamber, in other words, prepared by his own wife, the feminine part, the feminine goddess at the door who has beckoned him in, the part of Jane who has delighted in the beauty she created and now was willing to share her own beauty with her husband. And what of Jane? She has died to her need for independence. She is walking to her husband in a type of sacrificial journey. Why did Lewis portray her this way? When a woman totally gives herself to her husband, she sacrifices as he does, but her sacrifice is different than her husband's. The sacrifice of a wife reminds me of the chicken who was asked to provide eggs for her breakfast and the pig asked to provide bacon. And I'm sorry to compare a woman to a pig, but I think it fits here. The pig must give his all. And that's somewhat, if not totally true, of a woman in a Christian marriage. Let's examine my statement. A woman leaves the comfort and care of her parents' home, or maybe her own home. She gives up her very identity by taking on her husband's name. And she even gives up her body to bear children and to provide nourish, nourishment for them in their younger years. She often gives up her own ambitions, at least temporarily, to do so. She must trust her husband to support her and more to uplift her, to honor her and appreciate her great sacrifice. And sadly, this is becoming rarer. And no, even Christian men will not do this perfectly. We are imperfect fallen humans who must continually forgive and forget those acts of selfishness the other engages in. The forgetting when they forget the oneness that they have with their spouses. That happens way too often. And perhaps that is what Lewis implies in the final scene when Jane sees Mark's clothes thrown recklessly around. Lewis has made it abundantly clear elsewhere in the book that men and women must pitch in to provide for the family. He also makes it clear that most men will not care as much as most women whether this is done, quote, correctly, unquote. For us to enjoy happy marriages, these trivial things must be overlooked in order to achieve the job, the purpose that awaits the oneness. Let me reiterate that Lewis believes that both men and women were to take care of mundane chores around the home. Women must give men grace and not grief when the men do not reach their standards. This is the dying to self we must all undergo in which we cover each other's faults and missteps. Lewis further clarifies this in Mere Christianity when he says, 
there are to be no passengers and no parasites. The husband does not become another child for the woman to care for, but a partner, more than a partner, a part of her. And here's the kicker. The wife must allow, allow him to do so. I have seen women run men out of their kitchens and women who forbid their husbands to fold laundry because they did not do so correctly. That's on us, ladies. And yes, I'm raising my hand. I have done the same. And this may be more prevalent in my generation than in the younger generations. Lewis also says in Mere Christianity that Christianity is a director, as we see here in The Hideous Drink, with Ransom as the director. And this director will set them all to the right jobs as well as a source of energy that will give them new life. Our obedience is first and foremost to God, to walk in the way that will lead us, not just to eternal life, but to the best life here on earth. The independent female and the independent male cannot exist in the Christian unity of marriage. The one is created when we say our vows. This relationship we enter in is our representation of Jesus and his church. This means that just as Christians lose their identities, their old self, to walk in a new way as new men, reborn men, we do so when we enter marriage. We die to self in order to put on a new identity in marriage. Our submission to our marriage vows brings great joy in the long run. We die, as Jane did on our walk to Mark, to our romanticized version of love. We arise to walk in newness of life, the new garden, where a begetting of something greater begins, greater than anything we could have imagined or achieved alone. Lewis tells us in The Four Loves to let go of the thrills of romantic love and to settle into a quieter love, a quieter life, filled with companionship, the sharing of joys, the building of a home, the creation of a life together. If we do so, as we grow older, we will not mourn the loss of our youth, Lewis says, but will instead celebrate the life we have achieved, a life of service to God, a life of memories we share, a life in which we brought joy and contentment not only to ourselves, but to others. To achieve this, we must join with Mark and Jane and destroy the two-headed beast that brings about the destruction of this joy. Both husband and wife must cease to strive for independence, whether that fight for independence is against God or against our spouses. And the other head we must destroy is that of our drive for success. If a voice demands we keep up with the Joneses, buy the latest clothes, drive the latest car, live in the finest house, we must stifle that voice, reason against it time and time again. When we notice the two-headed beast is demanding, compelling, commanding, devouring, eliciting fear. Someone is more successful than me. Someone has a better husband than me. Someone's child made better grades than mine and so on. And it is causing us to forget where true happiness comes from. We need to silence. No, destroy that voice. The tower we build based on our own selfish desire for independence, for a successful life, and that success in the eyes of the world, not true success, must be demolished. We must get out hammer and chisel and break it down brick by brick. 
For us to do so with strength and courage, we must listen to the voice that brings us comfort, that leaves us satisfied, that leads us on the way to joy in this life, in the here and now. When we kill the two-headed beast, the one that demands independence and selfish success at all costs, die to that corrupted self, and then allow the director to feed us bread and wine as he did the mice in that hideous dream. We'll discover all we have ever really longed for. And as Jane discovers, we will see it was before us all the time. The way is through the rubble of the tower. The way leads us back into the garden where joy awaits. Thank you so much for joining me today and I hope you are having a, a great day and a happy new year. I will talk to you later. Bye.